Good morning. It's Monday, the 12th of June, and I'm Govindraj Ethiraj coming to you from Mumbai, India's financial capital. Our top weekend developments rating agency Moody's has put a dampener on India and the Reserve Bank's growth numbers. Elsewhere, the Standard & Poor's 500 has entered bull territory. India is sweating it out as heat waves increase. How can businesses better prepare for extreme weather and climate change? Automotive news Toyota Innova ruled the Indian MPV segment for close to two decades that will change as Maruti steps in. And even more clarifications on advance tax for overseas spends by Indian credit card holders coming the deadline by the way is the 1st of July. This is a core report with Govindraj Ethiraj. Moody's has come in with a lower growth estimate than the Reserve Bank even as US stocks start new bull run. The Indian economy is expected to clock a 6 to 6.3% growth in the June quarter, global rating agency Moody's said on Sunday, even as it flagged risks of fiscal slippage arising from weaker than expected government revenues in the current fiscal. Significantly, Moody's growth estimate is lower than the 8% projection for the same or the first quarter made by the Reserve Bank just last week. The managing director of Moody's Investor Service Associate Gene Fang told a wire agency on Sunday that India's general government debt is relatively high at around 81% of GDP for the 22-23 year. Now this is higher he said than the BAA which is a rating rated median of approximately 56%. He highlighted the risks of fiscal slippage stemming from lower than estimated government revenues and projected domestic growth rates at 6.1% and 6.3% for the years 2324 and 2425 respectively the report said last month moody's had said that india's gdp had crossed 3.5 trillion in 2022 and will be the fastest growing g20 economy over the next few years though reform and policy barriers could hamper investment So Moody's now has a BAA that's two small a's three sovereign credit rating on India with a stable outlook. Elsewhere, the Standard and Poor's 500 index last Thursday exited the longest bear market since believe it or not 1948. Yes, it is possible you did not even perhaps know that there was a bear market going on right now. The S&P 500 has been in bear market territory for about 248 trading days, the longest since the 484 trading days that ended in May 15th, 1948. Broadly, a 20% rise from a recent low signals the start of a bull market, while a 20% fall signals the start of a bear market. I must admit here that there is nothing so definitive about bull and bear markets and people use different definitions. This one I would say works for now. So the current bull run began on October 13th 2022 when the S&P 500 started rising around 3577 and is now up 20% to around 4299 on Friday last week. So what does this mean for Indian markets? Well, in general, bullish I suppose. Indian markets have been flirting with all-time highs in the last week and could of course extend further. The market has been rallying for 2 months now. If you want some bullish advice on a Monday morning, here it is. Jeffrey's Financial Group said last month it's a matter of time until the Sensex hit the 100,000 that's 100000 level. Another bullish input if you want one over the last 123 years the Indian stock market has delivered a real return of 6.6% 
which is higher than the returns delivered by US and China markets as well as world equity markets, according to the Netra June 2023 report released by DSP Asset Managers titled Early Signals Through Charts. So if you include Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley and all of these reports, clearly there's a lot of bullish reports coming in on India at this point. So choose carefully. Preparing for climate change. The rains have arrived late in some places in India, but most parts of the country are still sweating it out in abnormally high temperatures. We are seeing more and more days with heat waves. The Indian Meteorological Department defines heat wave as a condition of air temperature which becomes fatal to the human body when exposed. Overall, if the temperature crosses 40 degrees Celsius in the plains and 30 degrees Celsius in the hilly regions, it could be considered a heat wave. Based on departure from normal temperature, the normal heat wave occurs when it goes by 4.5 to 6 degrees Celsius and a severe heat wave happens when the departure is greater than 6.4 degrees Celsius. So if you've been looking at headlines in the city of Mumbai where I live, for example, you would have noted that there have been several occasions when temperatures have crossed this level. If the above criteria is met on at least two stations in a meteorological subdivision for at least two consecutive days, then it is declared a heat wave on the second day. Now, this is obviously the technical definition. Meanwhile, the World Bank in November last year had said that keeping spaces cool and innovative energy-efficient technologies could create a $1.6 trillion investment opportunity by 2040. It would also reduce greenhouse gas emissions and create 3.7 million jobs. The World Bank also said that in seven years' time, over 160 to 200 million Indians would be exposed to lethal heat waves. Some 34 million would face job losses due to heat stress-related productivity decline. And current food loss due to heat during transportation is close to $13 billion annually. So in roughly 15 years, demand for cooling will be eight times more than current levels or a new air conditioner every 15 seconds leading to, in turn, an over 435% increase in annual greenhouse gas emissions in 20 years. Meanwhile, <laughs> India's daily peak power demand touched a new high of 223 gigawatts on Thursday last week. The previous high was 220 gigawatts on May 17th. Now, India has about 417,000 megawatts of power generation capacity, and our plants are currently running at around 66% for the coal and lignite plants, which in turn are running at about 51% of capacity. By the way, India's renewable energy generation is around 43% or 179,322 megawatts higher than perhaps what you thought. So, while temperatures rise, the demand for cooling will place greater strain on energy of which we are currently hitting new peaks every day. So, if you're a business, how can you better prepare for this world and where specifically should you be focusing your energies on and what is the data or data set that you can rely on to inform your decision. To discuss this, I caught up with Dr. Arunaba Ghosh, Founder-CEO of the Council for Energy, Environment and Water. Dr. Ghosh is currently co-chair of the T20 Task Force on Climate and Energy for the G20 Presidencies, led by Indonesia in 2022 and India in 2023. I began by asking him to define climate change in the current context. Climate change uh, risks are basically what are called non-linear risks, meaning that what was a, a, an extreme event in the past has become a normal now. What is an extreme event now becomes normal 10 years from now. So basically, the risk profile keeps increasing. And especially within the tropics where the surface temperatures might rise even more, uh, we are particularly vulnerable 
because vulnerability in and of itself is is a function of how much you're exposed to this changing climate, but also how your infrastructure is sensitive to those changes, and then what kind of adaptive capacity you have to respond. So for a, a you know relatively poorer economy compared to advanced nations, we are more vulnerable because our sensitivity and adaptive capacity are also under concern right now. And you've talked about this in the context of the global south. So uh, can you expand on that a little bit? Well, the main thing here is that, you know, across the world, we are seeing, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars of damages thanks to extreme weather events, whether it's floods, cyclones, droughts, storm surges on the coast. But what is particularly worrying about the global south is that a lot of the damages are uninsured, meaning that the infrastructure that will be necessary for us to become an emerging economy and a developed economy uh, often is uninsured and goes uncovered against these risks. This is why it becomes particularly problematic that it's not just how much, how many storms are increasing along our you know, eastern or western coast, but how many billions of dollars we are not covering for. Uh, tell us about hyperlocal climate risk assessments. What does that mean and how can people use that? Uh, hyperlocal climate risk assessments are going to be extremely important. Normally, what has happened in the past is that we've treated large territories, say like India, as one big region. But, you know, it's very different whether you're putting up a bridge in Andhra Pradesh versus you're putting up a power plant in Maharashtra. Even within those states, we have to get down to the district level. Within the district, you have to get down to a sub-district level. So at CEW, what we have done is developed a climate risk or climate vulnerability index, which is district by district looking at the exposure to extreme climate events, the sensitivity within those districts, the kind of infrastructure, kind of economic activity that is there, and the adaptive capacity of the administrations or the local communities. This is what gives you an overall sense of vulnerability. Now, why this works is that then if you have to put in a major infrastructure project, for instance, India is promoting the Coalition for Disaster Resilient Infrastructure, and it is particularly focusing on sectors like telecoms, sectors like power, sectors like airports, where we see heavy investment coming in. And we need to make sure that this infrastructure at a very hyper-local level becomes much more resilient. It is to make it resilient that we need that hyper-local risk assessment. Right. And can you uh, tell us about how that is, is or likely to play out in the context of specific businesses? Or conversely, how should businesses be using this as we speak to better arm themselves? Well, overall, you know, we are losing between five to six billion dollars a year, sometimes even more to extreme weather events. But when you look at that uh, risk coverage gap, when the insurance is not there, the businesses will need to understand that if they are putting in an infrastructure, say a construction industry that is looking at large housing development, right? Are you in an area that is going to then get impacted severely by floods? What happened in Bangalore last year is evidence that even in high net worth individuals' homes, you had flooding coming in. Now, we don't have that kind of hyper-local assessment, which means that once those uh, damages occur, then for the businesses and their balance sheets, it becomes particularly problematic. Now, imagine you're, it's a project that is going to take a long period of time to build out. Let's say a large bridge that is being built or uh, along the coast or something like that. Then if, if they, during the construction phase, there is a storm surge and you get damaged, 
then again, you have a problem. So just doing assessments of, say, earthquake, seismic zone, etc. is not sufficient. One more reason why businesses should care about it is that we notice that in India, while three quarters of our districts have become hotspots of our extreme climate events, we are also noticing that 40% of our districts are showing what are called swapping trends. Means what was traditionally a flood-prone district is becoming drought-prone and vice versa. So if you've done your infrastructure planning, assuming that you're building against drought, but actually that area gets hit by a flood, then you have to be able to have anticipated that kind of risk and built in the resilience in the infrastructure in advance. And, and last question, I mean, could, to what extent could you do that? Could you actually uh, predict or project or anticipate this? What we have already done is we've looked at the past 50 years since 1970, and we know how cyclones and storm surges have increased in frequency and intensity. What we are now doing is overlaying that with climate models to show how those risks might increase. What we also need is much more understanding of what we call the adaptive capacity. Now, on the ground, what are the response measures that are there? Well, how strong is the administration? How strong are the local communities to be able to respond to these risks when they arise? So those kinds of data will also be needed to feed into this. I think it's certainly possible if you, you know, bought a home in, in a developed country right now, you will be able to get that localized risk assessment. Uh, very few places or perhaps none in the developing world has that kind of assessment available. If these are the very regions where new infrastructure will be built, once we are able to even get from zero to a better level of understanding, we actually improve the insurance cover. It actually brings in insurance companies into the space, which means that uh, what was traditionally completely uncovered or unhedged becomes something that insurance companies are able to look after in a more granular way. Over time, of course, the assessments will become more detailed, but at least you're beginning to create an insurance cushion for the vulnerable as well as for vulnerable infrastructure. Right. Thank you so much, Arunab. And you've given me a thought to uh, you know, build further on, which is to ask the insurance companies how they're gearing up for this. Thank you so much for joining me. And the MPV race begins. For almost two decades now, Toyota has had a vice-like grip in the multi-purpose vehicle or MPV market with its Innova, which in itself has gone through many iterations and facelifts. The latest version is the Hi-Cross, which is a hybrid and runs on petrol as opposed to diesel all these years, and succeeded the Krista model. Now, all of this is changing. Maruti Suzuki has announced a seven-seater MPV launching next month on the 5th of July, and the model is believed to be based on the Toyota Innova Hi-Cross. Going by sneak pictures it has shared and the interpretations of various auto experts and auto gyanis I could see. The engine configurations are similar, likely to be a 2-litre engine and paired with a self-charging electric motor. The hybrid powertrain is believed to provide a mouth-watering mileage of 21.1 km per litre and it will be sold via Maruti's Nexa chain and may be priced between 18.55 lakh to about 30 lakhs X showroom. The resemblance to Toyota's Innova is not accidental, nor is it a copycat attempt. Suzuki and Toyota have been in a global partnership for seven years now and have launched several models jointly. This partnership is increasingly becoming visible in the Indian market for domestic markets. Both companies announced last year that they would deepen collaboration for development and production in India. An official announcement from both said 
that since 2017, the two companies have been bringing together Toyota's strength in electrification technologies and Suzuki's strength in technologies for compact vehicles or read small cars for joint collaboration in production and in the widespread popularization of electrified vehicles. The latest collaborative models from the partnership that you may have seen are the Toyota Highrider and the Maruti Suzuki Grand Vitara Hybrid SUVs. On the other side, Toyota sells two Maruti Suzuki models, the Glanza and the Urban Cruiser, which are the Bellino and the Vitara Brezza. How this partnership between the two giants will evolve in the Indian market and for you as a customer, it is a little difficult to say at this point. But if you are in the market for an SUV or MPV, you could literally decide which one to buy depending on whose service network you trust more or brand you like better. And more on the 20% TCS. Finally, for those of you who've been tearing their hair apart on the new presumptive or advanced tax you will pay on credit cards when you travel overseas, the Finance Ministry will apparently issue an FAQ document on the applicability of 20% tax collected at source, news reports have said. The new rules kick in around two weeks' time or July 1st. Raman Chopra, Joint Secretary of the Revenue Department, said at a Confederation of Indian Industry event last week that they would certainly release a FAQ that would clarify beyond any reasonable doubt what and how and in what manner TCS is to be collected and not. He was responding to a specific question on distinguishing between corporate travel and personal travel spends. He did not apparently provide a date, but presumably, or rather hopefully, this FAQ would come before July 1st. That's it from me. Have a great week ahead and see you tomorrow. This was the core report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at the core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter at www.thecore.in. That is www.thecore.in or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook as well. Now, we would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant to you, including our reporting on India's vibrant manufacturing sector. Write to us at feedback at the core.in. Thank you for listening.